Chapter One of Pocket Island by Charles Clark Munn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Moline. Pocket Island: A Story of Country Life in New England by Charles Clark Munn. Chapter One. Pocket Island. In the year 1850-something, a Polish Jew peddler named Wolf and a roving Micmac Indian met at a small village on Annapolis Bay in Nova Scotia, and there and then formed a partnership. It was one of those chance meetings between two atoms tossed hither and thither in the whirligig of life. For the peddler, shrewd, calculating, and unscrupulous, was wandering along the Acadian shores, driving hard bargains in small wares. And the Indian, like his race, fond of a roaming life, was drifting about the bay in a small sloop he owned, fishing where he would, hunting when he chose, stopping a week in some uninhabited cove to set traps, or lounging in a village drinking or gambling. The Jew had a little money, and, what was of more value, brains and audacity. He also knew the conditions then prevalent along the main coast, and all the risks, as well as the profit, to be obtained in smuggling liquor. Rum was cheap in Nova Scotia, and dear in Maine. The Indian with his sloop formed one means to an end, his money and cunning the other. A verbal compact to join these two forces, on the basis of share and share alike for mutual profit, was entered into, and Captain Wolf and the Sea Fox, as the sloop was named, with the Indian and his dog for crew, began their career. As a preliminary, some fifty kegs of assorted liquors, as many empty mackerel kits, a small stock of oil clothing, sea boots, fishing gear, tobaccos, etc., were purchased and stowed away on the sloop, and then she set sail. There were along the coast of Maine in those days many uninhabited islands seldom visited. Fishermen avoided them, for the deep sea furnished safer and more profitable ground. Coasters gave them a wide berth, and there were no others to disturb them. Among these, and lying midway between Monhegan and Big Spoon Islands, and distant from the Isle O'Oat, the nearest inhabited one, about twenty miles, was a freak of nature known as the Pocket, or Pocket Island, as shown on the maps. This merits a brief description. It was hollow. That is, from a general view, it appeared like an attempt to enclose a small portion of the sea within high, fur-covered walls. It resembled a horseshoe with the points drawn close. Neptune beat Jove, however, leaving a narrow fissure connecting the enclosed water and the outer ocean, and through this the tides flowed fiercely, but so protected was the inner harbor that never a ripple disturbed its surface. It was this harbor that gave the island its name. Occasionally a shipwreck occurred here, in 1842, the British bark Lancaster was driven onto this island in a winter night snowstorm, and all hands perished. 
Five of the crew were washed ashore alive, only to freeze among the snow-covered rocks. The vessel went entirely to pieces in one night, and the wreck was not discovered until two years after by a stray fisherman, who suddenly came upon the bleaching bones and grinning skulls of those unfortunate sailors. The island was a menace to coasters and bore an uncanny reputation. It was said to be haunted. During a night storm, a tall man had been seen, by a flash of lightning, standing on a cliff. Strange sounds, like the cries of dying men, had been heard. When the waves were high, a noise like that made by a bellowing bull was noticed. The ocean and its storms play queer pranks at times, especially at night. White bursts of foam leaping over black rocks assume ghostly shape. Dark and grotesque figures appear crawling into or out of fissures, or hiding behind rocks. Hideous and devilish, snarling and snapping sounds issue from caverns. In darkness an uninhabited coast becomes peopled with demons who sport and scream and leap in hellish glee. Such a spot was Pocket Island. Nature also played another prank here, and as if to furnish a lair for some sea monster, she hollowed a cavern in the island, with an entrance below tidewater and at the head of this harbor. Inside and above tide level it broadened into a small room. As if to still further isolate the island, all about it were countless rocks and ledges bare only at low tide, and, like a serried cordon of black fangs, ready to bite and destroy any vessel that approached. It is probable that the Indians who formerly inhabited the main coast had explored this island and discovered the cave. An Indian is always looking for such things. It is his nature. It may be this wandering and half-civilized remnant of a nearly extinct tribe whom the Jew had compacted with knew of this sea cavern and piloted his sloop into the safe shelter of the pocket. And it was a secure shelter. No one came here. No one was likely to. Its uncanny reputation, added to the almost impassable barricade of rocks and ledges all about, made it what Captain Wolf needed, a veritable burrow for a sea fox. Here he brought his cargo of contraband spirits and stored them in the cave. Here he repacked kegs of rum inside of empty mackerel kits, storing them aboard the sloop with genuine ones. By this ruse he almost obliterated the chance of detection. Like a sly fox, he was always on guard. Even when the sloop was safe at anchor, he worked only in the cave. When all was ready, he and his swarthy partner would wait till low tide, then load the dozen or more rum-charged kits, and set sail for the coast. In these ventures, Wolf realized what his race have always wanted, the Jews' one per cent. In this island cave, nature had placed a curiosity, known as a rocking stone. It was a boulder of many tons weight near the wall of the room, and so poised that a push of the hand at one particular point would move it easily. When so moved, a little niche in the rock wall back of it was exposed. 
Wolf had discovered this one day while alone in the cave and utilized it as a hiding place for his money. Here he would come alone and, taking out the increasing bags of coin, empty them on a flat stone and by the light of a lamp count their contents again and again. Those shining coins were his god and all his religion, and in this damp and dark sea cavern and by the dim light of a lamp he came to worship. The Indian could neither read nor write, add nor subtract, and while he knew the value of coins, he was unable to compute them. Wolf knew this, and, unprincipled as he was, he not only defied all law in smuggling, but he had from the first defied all justice and cheated his partner in the division of profit. As the Indian was never present when either buying or selling took place, and had no knowledge of arithmetic, this was an easy matter. Wolf gave him a little money, of course. He needed him and his vessel. Also his help in sailing her. Not only was the Indian a faithful helper, but he held his tongue as well, which was very important. When in some Nova Scotia port, the money Wolf gave him as his share was usually spent in drinking and gambling, which suited Wolf, who only desired to use him as a medium. An Indian has no sense of economy, no thought of the morrow. To hunt, fish, and eat today, and let the future provide for itself, is enough. If he works one day, it is that he may spend the next. Among the aborigines, thrift was an unknown quantity, and the scattered remnants of those tribes existing today are the same. As they were hundreds of years ago, so are they now. They were satisfied with bark wigwams then. A board and a mud hovel is enough today. They cannot comprehend a white man's ambition to work that he may dress and live well, and all money and all thought spent in civilizing the Indian has only resulted in degrading him. He absorbs all the white man's vices and none of his virtues. Not only that, but the effort to redeem him has warped and twisted him into a cunning and revengeful creature. All malice and no honor. So true is this that the fact has crystallized itself into the universal belief that the only good Indian is a dead one. Such a one, though not comprehended by Wolf, was his partner. While that fox-like Jew was reaping rich profit and deluding himself in believing he was successfully cheating an Indian, he was only sowing the seed that soon or late was destined to end in murder. End of chapter 1 Recording by Roger Moline